Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. Today I'm speaking with Todd Casey. Todd is an artist, author, and art educator extraordinaire. His work won numerous awards in recent years and can be found in collections across the United States. He currently teaches at the Academy of Art University, Massachusetts College of Art, the Art Students League, and also independently. His book, The Art of Still Life, is currently sold out but might be back in print soon, so keep an eye out for that incredible resource. If you find this podcast valuable, please take a moment to rate it highly wherever you're listening, especially on Apple Podcasts, as they weigh listener reviews very heavily. Every five-star review helps this podcast reach more people, so thanks in advance. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. Without their support, it would have been impossible to set aside the time it takes to produce this show, so my supporters have my sincere gratitude. You can become a supporter too at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. Many thanks in advance. And now I bring you my conversation with Todd Casey. Todd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I think I'm going to start with uh, every author's favorite question. What's your book about? Uh, yeah, so I wrote a book uh, in 2018. It's called The Art of Still Life. And, um, you know, you're a teacher. I'm a teacher. As you know, um, we get frequently asked asked a lot of the same questions, and uh, I was teaching still life at the time, so a lot of the questions I was getting was, um, you know, what's the still life book to get? And uh, I'd I'd always just kind of be puzzled, and and I feel that way actually about a lot of um, topics where it's like pieces of Loomis and Gurney's great, and uh, um. Uh, can't think of the rest right now and i'm sure they'll come out but uh you know it's like i couldn't take one uh one great still life book so i said well i don't want to be a cynic i'd rather uh be positive and give but maybe it's time for me to to start to organize and put it together now i'm always super organized as a teacher you i think you have to be some people wing it i couldn't wing it so um i was contacted i think 2013 by a woman who had seen my painting in a magazine. And then she said, uh, would you teach me? And I said, yeah, I'm so close to you. And it's interesting because um, at that, at that junction, I wasn't thinking about writing a book, but that group and getting together and all those questions almost like serendipitously uh, started me on that, mm. that journey to write that book. So when the opportunity came about, I was kind of like, yeah, sure. My buddy Ken Salas uh, wrote a book. Uh, through Monticelli Press, and um, he w- he knew he doesn't know how to do Photoshop and Illustrator. <laughs> I conveniently do, so he would <laughs> a- he would ask me to uh, help him out with the illustrations, and I said I'd, I'd be more than happy to help him do whatever. Uh, he's wonderful and uh, super talented too. And when he was here working in the studio, um, he would ask me a lot of questions and ask my feedback. And through the engaging and talking, he was like, "Oh, you you know a lot. You should write a book." on still life. And I said, well, look, if the opportunity came about, so he got his book deal and then he was talking to the publisher and they were looking for a still life painter. So he just called me up and he's like, dude, you got to do it right now. And he's, he's aggressive. So he was like, do it 
right now. Like right now, call her. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I kind of did. And I did this totally stupid thing because I didn't know anything. And I remember I spoke to her on the phone and I said, um, yeah, sure. What do you want? A, a sample chapter? I think it was like Wednesday. And I said, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have it to you by Monday. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, what are you, crazy? You don't need to do that. And uh, I said, no, I'll do it. And and I did it. And uh, and then it's a waiting game. So mm. then I had to kind of wait. Um, anyway, that's a probably long-winded answer why I wrote a book. But... Well, it's, it's, it's long, but I don't feel like we've exhausted the topic. Because what's interesting to me is like, okay, so we understand the opportunity presented itself and mm-hmm. you went ahead and, 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 and wrote that book, but what's in it? If we, let's say, yeah. 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 No, that's a great question. Yeah. And sorry, hopefully that backstory all kind of helped. It, um, no, definitely. I'm just still curious. I want to know. Oh yeah. yeah. Kind of like everybody's listening. All right. So we have the epitome of like the best still life book that didn't exist before you decided to write it. What's in it? Oh, Mike's cutting out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so so in there, it was, that's actually was the most difficult part of the book is writing books. Like, what do you put in and what don't you put it out? Uh, what do you what do you not put in? And you have to kind of like think about it from the audience perspective. Is like, what are and it was great because the engagement every week. I had a group at that point. It was like it went from uh, three students to I think eight. And they were all asking questions and it made me sharper. So it was really like, well, they were always asking kind of like, what's the step-by-step? Where do you, what do you start? And then, you know, what do you do last? And I was like, it's just painting is not that organized. It's uh, I think David Kasten said, it's like falling down the stairs and landing on your feet. <laughs> so it, I do believe it's something like that, but you can organize it. So I tried to think of like, well, and this is where, like, you know, so my background is that I uh, went to grad school for animation. So I almost have a master's in there. So what I wanted to do was visually put it together. So I, I took all all the chapters or ideas that I had, and I put them on foam core boards so I could see them up on a wall. And then put them together and said, like, well, if I'm doing a painting, where do I start? Mm. You know? So it was kind of like the book had to work chronologically for anybody to be able to kind of read it. So it's not just a reference book that they can hop around. It's kind of like you start at the beginning and go to the end. And I wanted to make sure that where I believe a lot of painting should start, and it could be debatable, is that the idea is uh, is everything. The idea of vision. And it mm. could be the animation side of me or the illustrator. But um, I wanted to make sure that that, I, I think, you know, a lot of schools in, you know, that I've been into, uh, they kind of start with like just rendering a form or, you know, and then they're like, oh, how do I put a background in? And that's totally fine for an exercise, I believe. But normally it's like you got you to have your idea and then you use all those studies and everything to kind of gather information after and study the thing that you want to do and work out your idea. So, so if really, I understand, the, so the book is more like an instructional for somebody yeah. who wants to find a way in to the art of still life and asks themselves, okay, how do I start? How do I go about composing this thing? where's my way in? And this is right. kind of the answer that is, is given in the book. And I, I want to kind of pick on a thread that you, that you put there, which I think is, is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. The question of the idea. So to a, to a bystander, this might sound like, well, my idea to paint the still life is like, I have this jar and this teddy bear. And my idea is jar next to a teddy bear. 
Can you perform a correction on my thinking there? No, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and that's the thing. So not to always digress, but I'm going to digress a little bit. My idea of the way that I teach is very open-minded. It's uh, I don't come in. It's the part of the point of what I want to do was say like, look, there's a lot of ideas and you're going to hear them too. I want to debunk them and tell you where they come from and why you may think that way. So a lot of what I'm always trying to do is kind of like the yin and the yang always put like this idea up and then there's a uh, conflicting ideology and they both work, right? Mm -hmm. The yin yin actually, you know, the black actually has a piece of the white and the white has a piece of the black. So there's always like a, a piece of the other element in it. So as long as you get a wide variety of ideas, then I think you can choose kind of where in the middle you want to be. That's what I attempted with with the book. So I studied with Jacob Collins and I studied with Max Ginsburg and one's a direct painter, one's an indirect painter. So the book is this kind of seesaw between the two mm. of them to say like, you choose, I, I don't want to choose for you. And that's why it actually, it acts as a instructional art book, which is from beginning to end showing you how to, all the concepts that need to be thought about, whether you're indirect or direct, whether you're optical or conceptual, but then also it can double as a, an art book of just, beauty it's its own i mean everything that we do i'm sure you think about this too it's like everything i do from like cooking to dressing the plate is always my wife's always like oh this is beautiful and i'm like everything should be (laughs) so when it comes to like the question of like an an object of beauty it's like um if you're inspired to paint the thing paint it but just know that um there's more than just one way to kind of skin a cat if if you want to dig into it, there are people that are narrative. There are people that just paint what they see and everything in the middle of it. And um, it, it's almost like you, you owe it to yourself to kind of, unless you're not bored, uh, then to kind of see how other people work too. Because I think you'd be inspired by everything. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Oh, there's so much. There's so much in that answer. So I was, I was, I was trying to kind of be provocative and and say, you know, just painting a teddy bear next to a jar is not really an idea. But it seems like your approach is is uh, slightly more inclusive than mine. So how would you define when you say the most important thing is the idea? So how would we define that? How does a person know that they have a good idea for painting a still life? It's very broad, and and the way that the book kind of um, paints that idea is just that. Like I have a chapter just called, um, there's idea or vision. I think that's the chapter, man. It's so funny. Cause I wrote the book and then it's like deleted it from my head or something. But, <laughs> but basically it's like, I go by genre and say like, here's just a bunch of common things that people have painted. Doesn't mean you have to, but it might ins- inspire inspiration. So a teddy bear with a, uh, a jar. Look, my idea is just that art does so many different things for people. Uh, Some people do it so that they stay sane. Some people do it because like I tried to take it out of my life just to see if I could do without it. And I couldn't, and I came back to it, but it's like, you know, 
art, people do art for therapy. People do it because it's uh, their passion. Who am I to say what somebody should paint? Um, I'll give you ideas. I always say I'm like more like a lighthouse. Like, mm. watch out for the rocks. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to paint. I'm not going to. I don't want to tell you how to paint it either. But I'll give you ideas, and it, it's always like a mental exercise of like, like you should be solving the problem. I I I want to give you ideas of how other people solve it. Hmm. You know, rather than. If I tell you, if I said, Ken, uh, let's work together, you have to paint a teddy bear with a jar mm. right away. If that was my ideology, you'd be like, I don't want to paint. I don't want to paint that. So you right away, you'd be like, I don't know if I want to go back and work with this guy anymore. <laughs> right. So to me, it can't, just to kind of maybe make my question a little bit less strange, if somebody came up to me and said, I have a great idea for a still life. And they said, I want to paint a teddy bear next to a jar. I'd ask them. <laughs> Does it matter what color the teddy bear is? And if they said, yeah, it's a really specific like teddy bear that I have. It's, it's a pink teddy bear. I would think, all right, so what goes well with pink when we have to pick our jar, right? right? I would immediately start to think, okay, so that person knows what he wants to paint, but he doesn't have an idea for a painting yet. It's right. like he knows what actors he wants to cast in the movie, but the movie has no plot. The plot of a painting right. has to do with organization of colors and, and things like that. So I would definitely push in that direction, but that's just my approach. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's great. And what you're saying is you're basically jumping right into the idea of how to make a picture with your idea, which is totally fine. And that's, look, I've come from all these different schools. And uh, I mean, I've met people that start at the top left corner of a painting and end at the bottom right and finish. I've wow. seen people that, you know, uh, start with underpaintings and then build it up, that glaze, that scumble, that, you know, all these ideas. People do it in one pass, two people do it in five passes. It's like, are any of them right or wrong? Uh, I think they're all right. Hmm. But then they may all seem wrong <laughs> to us, which so is really just a judgment. So maybe I think you you were describing the book as as being a kind of swing between the Max Ginsburg style and the, right. and the Jacob Collins style. Now, to the people who are listening and they, they don't know these two individuals, which I honestly, you guys should know these individuals. So you should first start by Googling Jacob Collins <laughs> and Max Ginsburg. But maybe you can give an overview of how these techniques are different. Yeah. So what's interesting is that the, uh, the pictures behind you kind of speak a lot of words right there. You got Rembrandt, you got Bouguereau, you've got... Uh, everybody, Vermeer, uh, Velasquez, uh, looks like, I don't know, Dennis Bon Miller Bunker in the back. You've got them all, right? You've got Eakins, it looks like. Uh, you've got, um, it looks like a sergeant. Yeah, it's I, last, I, yeah, last time I was talking to Stephen Bauman, I said, this is a Pokemon game. I'm trying to catch them all, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, you got them. And uh, so anyway, not to digress again, but the idea is just that... Um, you know, the French academic tradition was an extension of the Italians, right? The Renaissance, not to give too much of a history, but I always like to put history in the context. It's going to tell a story. So it's like the Italians were uh, admired for the Renaissance. And then the French were like, we need to do that. So in 1648, I think Charles Lebrun started the French academic tradition. He didn't do it himself, but I think with, um, with the government, they were like, let's, let's do what Italy did. From there is kind of this uh, lineage all down, peppered through Europe, mostly through Paris, where it became the center of uh, the art world. Around, I'm going to try to see if I can get this right, 1860s, 1870s, around there is when the Impressionists were uh, 
came in the picture, right? So you had Aang and you had Delacroix. Mm-hmm. Aang and yeah, Delacroix. Yeah, exactly. It's between romanticist and the classicist. So Ang was like, or Aang was the like Greek Roman, like take all the history and you need to always have the substance to the painting, but you should never see brushstrokes. It's not, it's not about individuality. It's about the, uh, it's about the picture, right? Mm-hmm. It's about giving, uh, no, being classically trained and thought, blah, 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 blah. So then you had Delacroix who was like, well, I don't, you know, I could be expressive of my art. art. Uh, I can show you my brushstrokes. It's more about the spirit than it is about the uh, accuracy and showing uh, this perfect creation, right? So that's kind of like where the spark of this new idea came. And then out of it were like the Impressionists, where Manet, I think, all the rejections of the salon, not to go too much into the crazy You can go, man. We're not short on time. You can geek out as much as you want. Cool. Well, and there's Corbet as well. So Corbet was a big part of it. But um, so basically, you had this idea of like everyone was doing these sketches. It's part of the French academic tradition to do an abosh and then you do a, a sketch which is very loose, but you never show them. They were kind of like studio sketches. Well, the salon of refuses and and basically the bourgeois of uh, basically people that were. It it seemed like the deck was stacked against a lot of people and they weren't happy uh, about trying to get into the salon. So they ended up doing the salon of the refuses. And then eventually they did us. They had asked the the impressionists before they were impressionists to show their sketches, which was blasphemy. And the word impressionism was actually a, a derogatory term, definitely a derogatory to them. That was like, you can't show these impressions mm-hmm. of things. And it's kind of like, that's the break of the ideas, right? You kind of have like individuality, which is interesting. Cause it's also the break from, I think the, um, what was gone going on in France at the time as well. Mm-hmm. Revolution. So you have this idea that like individual individuality show brushstrokes, and then you have this other way. I kind of think of it as like, Aang is I like think- the, if I can but, just interject, I think the the way that I think about because I'm totally with you in the way that you're conceptualizing this, I think it's right. like individuality versus perfect idealism, right? When yeah. you're shooting for a perfect idealism, there is no individual. We're, we're looking for almost like the platonic forms, right? So when right. you're looking for an idealized form or an idealized shape, then there's no room for blemishes that look like brushstrokes. That's how yeah. I think about it. Yeah, and you, you can actually read some of the uh, diaries of like uh, Monet when he studied under, I think, Thomas Couture. And a few other guys too that were just like, like they just didn't like it. They came from he had come from Eugene Boudin, and Boudin was all about like painting in the like painting in plain air is all about like this uh, race to kind of like get the painting done because the light's fleeting. So he was kind of coming from the background. But anyway, Manet was part of it as well, and he was like they wanted him to be like the the leader of it, but he didn't want to be part of it. So you kind of have this break, and then from there is when you get the like kind of break in the teaching and then you get the William Merritt chases and the John Singer Sargent who loved Man- Monet. He actually went and sat on the feet of him and said like, what are you doing? This is beautiful. And uh, Sargent's paintings actually changed too. And they all look at that guy in the background, by the way, your Velasquez, because <laughs> everyone loves him because he was painterly. One of the first painters. Uh-huh. Why don't you get uh, Davi back there too? Now that you moved your head, yeah, and it's it's just woo. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Oh, and don't get me started about the other walls. <laughs> oh, cool, panoramic view. 
Um, yeah, to the people to the people who are just listening in audio, I think I have a background that's a little distracting because I have all of my studies just like posted on my wall. So to the people interested in in seeing how that awesome. looks like, just go on my YouTube. Cool. Sorry for cutting you off. Yeah, no, no. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of like the break. And that was like where it seems like the French economic tradition kind of carried on here. And then the break of the Impressionists went another way. The American Impressionists adopted them because they were coming over to the... Um, well, I mean, like, you know, there's also Van Gogh and there's also the Favs as well that uh, added to kind of the color aspect of like being expressive with your color. Mm. The Industrial Revolution also was a big part of it in Europe because cadmiums and cobalts were now available. So color was everywhere. Before then, they had all these earth palettes and vermilion was kind of like the high chroma uh, color before that. So anyway, that's kind of the lineage. And then when you start to break them down and you go like, William Merritt Chase went to New York. Okay, who did he teach? He taught a whole generation of our students league people. That's where like, and also Frank Duvenek, I think was another one that came over. So they came over and they and they set up shop in New York and then Eakins came over and he set up in Philadelphia. And then there was a lot of the Boston School painters that had come over. I think it was William McGregor Paxson from the Boston School that taught mm-hmm. like Edmund Tarbell and Frank Benson and Chelda Hassam and basically all these beautiful painters that we look at. Like to me, Sargent is like, in, that's my art right there. That's where I want to be. And the American Impressionists are... are uh, are there the William Merritt Chases, the ones that I just uh, kind of rattled off, Twatman and anyway. So when I think of these two lineages, from there was like where they taught the Cape Cod School, Hawthorne and Henchy, and Henchy taught Abraham Ginsburg, and Abraham Ginsburg is Max Ginsburg's dad who taught Max Ginsburg, and he's teaching this kind of color side of it. Mm. And then Jacob is kind of the other side. He's the uh, Ang maybe some Bougaro in there too, you know, that, that side of it, that's like more earthy palettes. Um, well, Jacob is a little bit brushy. If you saw his work, he's actually mm-hmm. more similar. I would say to like Dennis Bunker Miller. Um, but it's like, you see these kind of divides in the way that the a la prima is the way that Max works and the indirect way that Jacob works is do a drawing first, transfer it to canvas, build it up through grisaille, then uh, use your earth palette to kind of, build your beautiful skin tones. So you're building it in stages. Alla prima mm-hmm. means in the first, uh, depends on who's translating it, but really they're trying to knock the whole painting out in one moment. So it looks fresh. Brilliant. So that's, if I, if I'm to, if I'm to sum up as I understand it. So you're saying we had a break between Delacroix and Ang, and they lead to two different, you could say lineages, one with a focus on disegno, you know, platonic forms the ideals uh and this leads us all the way to jacob collins and delacroix with a focus on the individual on the spirit on the expression and this through sergeant william mary chase and all those all those good guys can lead us all the way to max ginsburg now i have a theory which i'm wondering what you think i mean it's not really my theory it's just as as i examine history i i find some things that uh, i think relate to what you're saying but maybe also expand on it yeah for sure so in my in my in my opinion you could still see these two different approaches in more in in far older days like for example if i'm looking at the italian renaissance and we're examining the work of Raphael and da vinci and all the florentines and michelangelo 
these mm-hmm. are very disegno oriented and then you compare them to the venetians like titian tintoretto veronese they're a lot more expressive a lot more brushworky so right. i think this is actually something that did come to a very heated uh boiling point with delacroix versus ang also because it became almost political and they were fighting it, it, they were fighting uh in the newspapers like dissing each other basically like rappers yeah. but i think in old times you could also <laughs> see that i mean think about think about um a comparison to almost contemporary painters um rembrandt and vermeer you know vermeer right. is very disegno very uh idealized no brushworks at all all about mm-hmm. the perfect picture and rembrandt is all about the spirit the expression the brushwork uh does that sound persuasive that this is actually a, a an age-old battle that started maybe oh, absolutely after? absolutely i love your rap rap battle idea yeah <laughs> easy e and uh easy e and dr dre weren't the first ones ll cool j and uh kumo d were the first <laughs> no i i think you're right and um i'm sure you know we can think of more as well. I've, look, it's like, if you look at like even Franz Halls, it's like Franz Halls seems mm-hmm. to be like the pre-sergeant sergeant. So they're definitely, you know, everybody looks at like Rembrandt as, and and for a reason, as like the daddy of uh, painters and Velasquez, right? The kind of mm-hmm. like painter painters. And uh, yeah, you definitely can't see like no brushwork on their, on their forms. Hans Holbein, you can't. Mm. So it's like, it definitely, you know, or Joshua Reynolds is somewhere in the middle. So it's like, you know, it definitely is an interesting debate. And for some reason, it came back around. <laughs> I think I think what people listening can can take away from it is that in painting and basically in every art form, you have to make choices. You have to make some kind of compromises. You can't have everything in the same picture. And there is something that, repeats throughout history a decision that you kind of have to make or you you can avoid making and it will be made about your work in retrospect but you can't have very very expressive brushworks and also very refined modulation of design because of course these brushworks they contrast with your ability to express the form perfectly mm-hmm. but what you win on the other side is you get to put more of yourself in it in terms of like your personal brushwork, your signature, the touch of your right. hand becomes more, you know, I can tell you a lot more about the touch that Rembrandt had with his brush than than Vermeer. As far as I'm concerned, Vermeer was such a magician that he could have, he might as well have put pigments in his hand and just puffed them onto the canvas, you know, <laughs> and just this thing just kind of got created. So in terms of, of these, this, this is something that I feel like people who are just starting out get confused by because they say, I want this and I want that and I want this and I want that. And then their whole painting becomes a little disorganized. And I do think that as you grow as a painter, you kind of learn to understand, okay, I can't have it all. Here are some things that are more important to me. Here are some things that I'm willing to forfeit. And when you kind of mature to the to the point where you're making these choices about each and every painting that you're making, it kind of helps you start to develop your own style as a painter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the exercises I used to give my students all the time, I, I love what you said, by the way. Uh, one of the exercises I would give my students was to uh, go to, let's go to the museum, walk into the middle of the room and don't look, don't look for names. Walk in and then whatever picture grabs you, go talk to it. And then still don't look at the name. You know, don't look for, for the, uh, you know, uh, Starry Night. Don't look for all that crap. It's totally fine. And we we were tainted on how we... We love the Mona Lisa. Everybody loves Mona Lisa. You're not going to walk in and not know what the Mona Lisa is. 
but you may find somebody like Paul De La Roche or something and go like, wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Or for me, it was Henry Regnault, which was gorgeous. Or uh, another one was Antonio Mancini. Wow. I used to walk by at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston all the time. And, it, and they had a beautiful St. John the Baptist there. And I would always just stop and then look around and be like, where is everybody? Like, <laughs> what, what are you what are you doing? You know, so people congregate, congregate. Uh, everyone wants to go see Monet or something like that at the Met or uh, Madame X. Right. Uh, or Edwin Austin Abbey was actually their showpiece back in the day before, I think, um, like Monet was in there, but I don't know. I I'm, I'm all for like, um, and that's what I tried to emulate in that book too, is kind of like dig into your thoughts and your ideas and find out why you want to do this. You owe it mm. to yourself to, to figure that out and then tell your stories. So sure. I think Manet said I, all, you can say everything with fruit and flowers. I think Cezanne has a funny one like that too, but it's like, maybe you don't want to do that. So it's it's nice to kind of see what everybody else is doing to a degree. I think Instagram is good and bad for that because it can taint us to be like, hey, Ken did a sweet painting. I want to do my version of it. And then you see that and then you're like, oh, man, now everyone's doing this thing. So it becomes like a fad. But I, I hear I hear uh, hints of contrarianism, which I <laughs> which I relate to. Uh, and I think we can we can definitely elaborate on that. But there's there's another there's another thread there that I think is really important. The way that you're you're trying to make people uh, open up their experience to things that aren't necessarily like the pop star hits, you know, the museum flagpole, uh, yeah. you know, because and, and, and I think there's a lot to be gained from that, because a lot of the times these masterpieces are a little bit too opaque and there's mm -hmm. almost less to learn from them because it's it's hard to discover something new in an image that you kind of saw all your life something that's really really famous it doesn't really surprise you anymore because you're just you just end up going there seeing it in person and, and thinking that's the painting in person but I, at least for me I, i i totally relate to what you're saying and there's there are hidden gems in museums where i feel like the majority of the learning can occur and i think those there are pictures that you never see anybody kind mm -hmm. of stopping in front of them and and, and and those are actually the unfinished works or the sketches like the Met yeah. has a few unfinished Rubens paintings it has an unfinished yeah. Durer painting and as painting you know I understand that to to you could call them to casuals right they could be like oh that's unfinished like I don't really care but in fact those are the paintings that reveal the most about how the artist was thinking you know before yeah. he managed to like polish it to cover it up with all the pristine finishing touches this is where his mind is raw where you can see how he was thinking and i think one mm -hmm. of the exhibitions that was most influential on me i don't know if you got to see uh the unfinished show at the met breuer when it was breuer, yeah yeah oh goodness me when yeah. i saw that jacques louis david does not start his paintings with a grisaille and it starts it with a much looser kind of a bosch style yep. color mapping it was absolutely transformative for me so i i would highly recommend to people if you see some piece of paper out there that looks completely unfinished that's exactly what you should be lingering over because this is this is really where the painter's ideas are still totally on the surface not hidden by fancy fireworky special effects and uh there's so much to learn from it absolutely yeah i think um you know definitely as artists too i think we go in there with a different motive than uh everyone else which is kind of like 
how did Bouguereau do that? <laughs> but how though? <laughs> do you yeah. know? Can you yeah. tell me? <laughs> well, that's why like I get yelled at because my face is in the painting. And then I'm like, really? Is it? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty close. <laughs> but it's like, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to kind of like reverse engineer what the heck we see in front of us. And then what's weird too, and that's why it's like paintings have to be, you have to go see them in person because there's a difference between what they're doing uh, two-dimensionally on a piece of paper printed and then light interacting with them. Like glazing and, and glazing, for example, you just can't show if you're just going to, like everyone everyone has those like, oh, the girl with the pearl earrings, amazing. And then they go see it and they're like, yeah, it looks just like the book. And you're like, no, oh. get in there, look. <laughs> and um, I do think maybe people need to be trained on kind of how to how to talk about art and how to look at it. And then on the materials to know what to look for. Because mm, light is such a massive interaction of what, what they're looking at. But So maybe you can say more about that. Maybe a few tips on how to properly engage with an art piece if you're trying to learn from it. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the, as, you, as you are showing uh, tremendously behind you, uh, master copies is the way to go. So I would say, you know, the, the way that uh, the French academic tradition was, was and, and I think most traditions, was to do master copies. That was like a third of what you were doing. You were just always studying, studying the hand of uh, all, all those giants that have come before you, that Newton quote, right? I stand mm -hmm. on the giant's wall that'll come before, and that's for the reason why I can see further. So like, go, go and do master copies. I, I'm always a student of this. So I'm always doing a master copy from a book that's totally, I think it's fine if you can't get to the museum that you want to do the copy of. So I've copied like Dean Cornwall's, Albert Herter's, uh, they're in DC. The other one, I don't even know where the collection is. But then also going to the Met. I mean, if you've been to the National Gallery in in Washington DC, right? I must be. I'm I'm a, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I haven't. I oh, need to. Totally fine. No, you <laughs> should. Well, you should go. And right now, obviously, nobody can do anything in Corona time. But but the the sad part to me is that the tradition is lost in that sense. They have all these. They have an easel in every room, and no one's in there using them. You're kidding. So it almost. Yeah, so it almost becomes like this piece of decoration. Wait, hold on. Let me stop you there. You're saying that they have easels already made, prepared in there for the purpose of encouraging people to copy and nobody's taking that offer? I'm pretty sure the last time I went, there were. And then I think I went and asked them. So I always get inspired every time I go to a museum. I'm always like, I want to do a copy of the Abbey. And it's like, well, you're crazy because it's humongous at the Met, right? It's the biggest painting, I think, there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I want to learn from him. <laughs> so it's like when I go, I always like have a conversation. I'm like, uh, could I do a copy of the Albert Herter? And they're like, we don't do museum copies. I, I, I'm maybe putting words in their mouth, but I know I went to like the Yale Museum of Art. Uh, and it, it's like, it's a, it's a school mm. which they teach painting. And I said, I, can I do a copy here? Because they have an abbey there. They have the uh, scene within a scene from King Lear. And I thought like, oh, not King Lear. King Lear's the one. It's Ophelia, I think. Uh, this, Yeah, the scene within the scene from um, Hamlet. So mm -hmm. And I, I was like, this is such a gorgeous painting. I took my friend, he like, cried in front of it. It's gorgeous. So I went and I said, can I do a copy of it? Abby's one of my favorites. He was friends with Sargent. They work very similarly. And I love a good narrative in a painting. And they were like, we don't do, we don't do, we don't let people do master copies. And I thought like, well, that's disgraceful. I know. 
the Met but, has a long process too, and they only give you a small amount of time to do it. Yeah, well, the Met, I I, I bypass that uh, <laughs> just by going with a sketchbook. Okay, yeah, you know, for me, I think this touches on the next thing that I wanted to ask, but for me, of course, I would learn more if I could set up an easel with, you know, with a canvas and all my oil paints. And, and, and of course, I, I could learn more precise things about the techniques if I work that way. But I, I derive a ton of knowledge just by going there with my sketchbook and just totally. sketching. Yeah. And, and, and for me, this, this really goes towards the, the big question that I think everybody has. It sounds something like this. It's like, okay, I want to learn from the masters. I own a sketchbook and a pencil. But when I go there and I sketch Rembrandt, I don't feel like I've learned from Rembrandt yet. What am I missing? How am I looking at it wrong? So my my take on it really is that as you are copying Rembrandt, try not to copy, let's say you're painting a portrait. Try not to copy the person that Rembrandt painted, but rather mm. the painting that Rembrandt painted. Right. So this, this leads you down a completely different uh, thought pattern. You're not thinking oh, how does that person look like? What kind of eyebrows does he have? What kind of nose does he have? You're thinking, why did Rembrandt, okay, Rembrandt put darks over here and he put light over here. You have to think about it like you're you're learning the mechanics behind the painting. And I think, because yeah. I, I, having gone to the Met and copied probably hundreds of times by now, I do see a lot of people with sketchbooks. And unfortunately, a lot of them, they have a they have goodwill. You could see that they're hardworking people, right. but they're going there and they're they're copying the person painted instead of the painting itself. And that's kind of like when you want to learn a magic trick, you can't fall for the illusion. You can't fall right. for the illusion. <laughs> if you're trying to, to discover how did the magician do what he did, you're asking yourself, well, where is the trick? Where is he leading my eye? Where does he want me to look? How does he make right. me want to look there? These are the kinds of questions that you want to be asking yourself if you want to make your master copy uh, productive and educational. I agree. I think, you know, the purpose of a master copy is not just to have a nice painting to put on your wall at the end. It's to have a dialogue with the person and understand the decision making that they did and why they did it. I do think, you know, like, let's say I would run my own school, which I never will do because it's such a time suck. Um, I would say that, you know, we should also try to get into the materials and use what they did. Like Rembrandt didn't have access to cadmium red light. Why, why are artists using it? I, you can actually access uh, vermilion now. Michael Harding has a uh, genuine Chinese vermilion, which is, uh, a, it's a mercury. Mm -hmm. And you, and I'd also say use flake white. If you're going to use titanium white, your decision-making is totally different. Have you painted with flake white versus titanium? I exclusively paint with flake white, but I wanted you to right. elaborate okay. for our listeners. Yeah. Oh no, for sure. I mean, the tinting strength on titanium white is insane. It's like it's gonna it's gonna quickly tint everything and pull it quickly, where flake white is gonna be this slow modulating add. That's why it's like piles of paint are added to it to really make the mixture. So he was obviously uh when we go lighter in form, we're gonna tint grab something like flake white, which is actually a, a, a light yellow and titanium seems to be on the cooler side, at least in relation to it. I think if you ask somebody like um, Graydon Parrish, I think, or Doug Flint, they would say that it's a low chroma yellow, very low chroma yellow. And it could actually be, I talked to Robert Gamlin about this too. He, he said he thinks it's because it's always suspended in an oil, which is yellow. Mm -hmm. So if you had pure pigment without the oil, you may have white, but because there's something over it, 
it's always going to be tainted a little bit towards something. So mm. I would say try you like it's interesting. It's so I'm trying to see if there's a good analogy. It'd be like trying to uh I guess play a song from the past with uh with a rock guitar and you're like, well, mm. you know, they played it with a banjo. So it's like our tools are way more advanced and our mm. color systems are way more advanced. So why not go back to if you're gonna just if you can get the variables that they had and then the decisions that they had, then you'd I think uh well not you, I'm not saying it to you. I'm just saying like in general, to I us. think to us. Yeah. And I and I'm a v I've done it too. I've done it just like, hey, here's my palette, and I'm gonna do the Albert Herder I think I did with what I had. I didn't research the uh the herder palette, but I think um I think it's interesting once you start to see that like pigments and uh, materials and where time frames are related to why they used what they use. Absolutely. This this just touches on something that I was talking to a student about today. God, so many like I don't even know what to pick up on. There's so much. There's so much there. There's so much there. When we were talking about this myth that I don't. I don't know where you fall in this debate, but there's a whole like discourse around not using black pigment and just oh, yeah. mixing your own black and i have I'm it thinking, in the book it's, it's just oh my goodness it's like you could just how, rattle off like 10 artists that use it like sergeant sergeant had black in his palette it's like and sergeant you could argue about but every the, artist behind you has black <laughs> exactly the thing is it's as you are talking about when we're examining the historical context and they're telling me oh you could mix black from umber and blue back in the day blue was so expensive could mm-hmm. you imagine like rembrandt mixing pure lapis lazuli with some umber it's no. like impossible let me let me just bring the, let me just bring our, our our listeners in so okay so a lot of things that are happening here <laughs> I feel like I feel like I need to make sure that I clear the table. So we're talking about the benefits and what you can learn about the pigments that were used in the old times when you're when you're actually being true to the historical perspective and what was actually available for Rembrandt, what was actually available for whatever painter you're choosing to copy and how it's going to help you understand their technique better. So in that case, I'm kind of always fighting against this myth that using black pigment is is in some way inadequate because it quote doesn't appear in nature close quote which is is completely bogus and and i mean the powder from which we made the paint exists in nature so all that it, it makes no sense at all um and 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 for that i think you really do benefit a lot from actually looking at the master that you're trying to learn from and asking yourself what did he or she have available to them and, right. and trying to use those tools now just a little bit of a of a of a note about flake white that i feel like i want to be responsible in in, in communicating to everybody listening so flake white as as todd was saying has a weaker tinting power therefore it's it's able to preserve more chroma in the high values and also painters find it very attractive because of how thick it is and how easy it is to build impasto with it, but it is toxic and therefore do not rush to the shop to buy it now if you are in any way a messy painter. This should be motivation for you to become a clean painter who doesn't get paint on their face so that when you feel like you've graduated to that level, then you can kind of like win the reward of starting to use flake white. That's my approach (laughs) to it. I just want to make sure that everybody is safe out there. Yeah, no, that's good. And look, flake white is also lead white. It can uh, contains lead, um, le- uh, nickel, 
uh, what is it? Lead tin white, I think is what Rembrandt used too, which is mm -hmm. like a light yellow. Um, yeah, and there's also Kremnitz white. So Kremnitz white is also flake white. It's just from a town in Kremnitz, uh, which was uh, part of, um, going blank right now, part of, uh, it's not called that anymore. Uh, I wouldn't know. All right. Well, <laughs> anyway, it's, they're it's, all pretty much synonymous. Town. Yeah, they all they all have lead in them. Uh, and this this brings to mind a story that my teacher told me once when he was working on a copy of of uh, of Holbein, and he said he started with a a pretty rich palette of all the earth tones and everything that Holbein had available to him. And mm -hmm. as he was working on his painting, he kept on discovering, man, my chroma is too high. Like, I don't need this pigment. I don't need others in crimson. I don't need Venetian red. I don't need right. this. I don't need that. And he told me that by the end of the painting, he was almost exclusively just working with like white, black and raw sienna, just something yeah. totally ridiculous. And, and sometimes, I mean, once you, you mature in the process of studying the masters, you understand that it's not about having all the colors on your palette. It's about how right. do you bring forth balance and harmony from the very few ingredients that you do put on your palette? Yeah, I mean, someone like Anders Zorn palette, which is, I, I don't know why it's so popular right now, but the four color palette of Anders Zorn, oh my God, let's go crazy. All right, now that that's over. Uh, like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I think I'm to blame. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's fine. I think it's, what's interesting is that the Zorn palette was talked about for a while. And then I think in 2015, there was some exhibit. Now it's gone huge and I think with the internet and Facebook and Instagram, it's gone bonkers. But Andrew Zorn uh, used four colors, flake white, uh, yellow ochre, genuine Chinese vermilion, and uh, ivory black, which was called bone black at the time, which bone black is really just uh, charred up animal bones, I believe, that uh, we've changed it to ivory black now, the name. And he used those four colors to do a lot of his paintings. Now, it's not all his paintings. I've actually... I was actually just looking online. I can't find it, but there's a, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is where I used to go all the time. I remember bringing in my students to be like, and here's Andrew Zorn. He had four colors, except for this painting where he has six on his palette. <laughs> and I was oh like, my God. maybe he didn't. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So like, I don't, I think, I wouldn't say it's a myth. I'm sure he did that painting that everyone knows of him, like kind of with a woman in the background, kind of leaning over mm -hmm. with four colors. But I don't think it's like the palette that he used all the time. Just like my palette changes all the time. I'm sure I've been researching Sargent and Monet's palettes and it's like you find 10 different answers. So how can anyone have one palette? I don't think anyone is that just like, I got it. No, let's paint no. for 30 years. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Like, let let it let this be on the record. I do not believe like not even I don't I don't even think it's an issue or, or to anybody who's confused about this. The Zorn palette. Zorn did not use this palette for the majority of his paintings. Right. I'll go as far as saying that his best paintings, if we were to find the top 10, none of them are going to be done yeah. in this palette. You could x-ray uh, them, too, and find yeah. uh, particles on them. But in but in in the palette's defense, what I think it does absolutely like amazingly is it opens a path for investigating a visual phenomenon under like 
very narrow circumstances that can can kind of take you very very far. So for me, when I when I teach this palette and when I advocate this palette, it's for people who are beginners and mm-hmm. they don't have extensive knowledge of 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 chroma control and mm-hmm. hue navigation. So for that, I tell them like, here, here you go. You've got black There's and white. There's one yellow. Yeah, one yellow, one red, just black and white. Just try not to overuse the chroma. And whenever it gets too chromatic, you know, mix it with some gray. That's, it's a yeah. really like, you could even say dumb down uh, way of thinking about color that I think can, a lot can be said for how educational that palette is. But yeah. you people, you should look at Zorn's landscapes. Those <laughs> blue skies, it's not ivory yeah. black. I guarantee you. Now. No way, yeah. So it's 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 interesting. Back to what you said about the uh, uh, the other one is like warm, like cool shadow. You know, you said the so those are actually two things in the book. I just I was like I have to put these in the book because I heard them all the time, and I call them like echoes of the past. And yeah. I was always like, where did they come from? And they have a place where they do come from. And there's a reason why you would not use black maybe outside when you're doing uh, plain air painting because you're probably not going to see. Even black in shadow in full light is not black. Depends on if you know you're looking at the lights or the shadows. But you know the the painters that this comes from. Again, this is that break. This is the like classical painters use black. Uh, impressionist painters do not. They mix their own, and it's because they're painting outside. I think a mm-hmm. lot of it is because of. Um, of yeah, I think I think you're totally right. So a lot, a lot of. Uh... I don't know how to say this in English, but in, in Hebrew, we would call it like broken telephone. It's like a game of telephone. Somebody said something to somebody, somebody said something to somebody. And, and, and every time this rumor kind of spreads, the original context gets lost and then the message gets distorted. So right. I think impressionists, you know, painting outside for kind of the first time, taking all of their equipment out there, being confronted with very novel visual phenomenon are coming up with all these discoveries saying like, wow, there is no use for black because we don't see that color when you're outside, when you don't have a model with a black fabric, all that kind of stuff. Yes, of course, then you see far less black and wow, all the shadows look blue. Yes, they look blue because it's the complementary color of orange and the sun seems to be orange. So because it's everything is, is lit with orange light, of course, your your shadows are going to appear blue. But we have to make sure that we that we don't take all these rules as dogma and we understand the context under which they were synthesized. Otherwise, we're going to kind of go off the rails. Amen. Yeah. So I, that's like half of my teaching. So when people come in, to, you know, to, to study and they're like, oh, I'm going to mix my own black. And I'm like, you can do that. And that's fine. But um, just know that someone told you to do that thing. Like, like if you arrived at that and you choose to have high, like more chroma in your colors, that's totally fine. But nothing can get as black as black in a shadow as an accent. So there's nothing wrong. Like Mars black, I think is the deepest of them all. Use Mars black. I use lamp black. It's a little bit more on the, I think trans translucent side, but whatever i would say like you know and that's why it's like i try to just be like the lighthouse like i'm not going to tell you not to do it but why don't you find out why someone told you to do that thing just like i don't want to call anybody out but i was on facebook and i had asked somebody like i had saw their notes from their professor and it was another dogma thing which was given and uh it basically was just like if you see a lemon in the light's going to be uh, yellow and in the shadow's going to be purple. And I thought like, so I sent a message just to say like, I'm not trying to be a dick, but I just want to know, I teach art. Do you see purple in the shadow? And then 
was a little bit defensive. And I said, no, I'm just more curious, you know, because uh, I teach it. And the person responded and said, uh, I see a lot of colors. And I was like, <laughs> I don't think you see purple. So like, you know, and that's 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 a dogma again. That's just like a formula. It's like when you see uh, warm light, there always has to be cool shadow. Well, we look on the other side of the wheel, but also color can be in context of one another. So you can push warm or cool in a yellow, as, as you know, and I'm sure you teach it too. But to say that like a lemon should have a purple shadow, I just, I just don't get it. That's it's, where it's like, it, it ended up being like this, like people, my professors would say it. They wouldn't explain why. They explained it as a dogma. And then I was just like, I just, I, I guess I just don't get it. I'm going to need you to always explain this to me because I just don't see it. And it doesn't become about the visual kind of extracting from the visual world that we see and understanding why things happen. It's just kind of like, oh, I'm like, cool shadow. Okay. Yeah, there's not, I, I think there's nothing more criminal than that. This, this hurt, this hurts me on every level. Every You've level. It, right? it, it, oh, my, I, I did my degree at Parsons. It's like everything, mm. everything I heard there was some, some form of, of these cliches or, 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 or dogmas. And I'm going to, I have to elaborate on the levels where it hurts me the most. So, first, it hurts me as an, an as a teacher because i know these things are incorrect and the goal that somebody needs to have in order to communicate an idea that clearly they just heard from someone and have not researched at all because had they done even a modicum of research they would have known that they're communicating a, a bad idea so this means that somebody has the audacity to stand there in front of a group of students semester after semester, you know, telling them lies, essentially, that they are too lazy to confirm is absolute just crime. This is me as a teacher responding. Now Mm -hmm. me as an artist responding, it hurts me as an artist because it produces people who make the same work. You know, when everybody wants to paint lemon and they put purple in the shadow, where... Where is where is the personality now? Like I was there in in these classrooms listening to to the to this you know load of nonsense honestly, and it's just I see I look to my left I look to my right and everybody's is is just carefully following these these bad dogmas and, and producing paintings that are mm-hmm. identical because once you give somebody information that basically provides a permissive structure to ignore what you see in front of you you know you look at the lemon you know it's not purple but right. You know, somebody told you, you know, ignore what you see. Let, let's just follow these rules. Then nobody's nobody's in contact with reality anymore. Literally, nobody's even looking at reality. We're just we're just following some recipe, and it's a bad recipe. It doesn't taste good. I agree. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know. And I say it in the book. I actually talk about like warm like whole shadow. Let's talk about it and why it doesn't exist. It it, it can exist, but it's not going to exist in a still light painting. And then the same with black. I, I have no problem with people mixing their own black. I do it sometimes. Uh, burnt, burnt sienna or transparent earth or uh, red, depends on which brand you use. And um, ultramarine blue is a beautiful transparent black, but it's not always the best choice. And it's going to get you a little more color if you're going to use it. So knowing when to use it, I think, is the most beneficial tool. Mm. To see, like, here's an idea, and there's where they use it, and here's an idea that conflicts with that, and here's where they used it. You make a choice when you want to use it. Mm. Rather so, than be like, you know, warm like cool shadow. Don't ask questions. Yeah. Because so, I don't know the answer. 
<laughs> yeah, the warm light cool shadow thing has to has to be completely discontinued. But but what I do think is useful, I, I, I wonder if that's something that you include in your book, but the way that I honestly uh you could call it formulaic, but it really it really shouldn't be. Uh, I I do pay a lot of attention to the color of the light and how it influences the colors of the shadows. So Absolutely. to those, yeah, yeah, okay. So just, just making sure we're on the same page there. I want to kind of bring bring our bring our listeners into the fold. So it looks like we have a consensus around the fact that, of course, the color of the light matters a lot. It's just that it's not always warm. You know, very frequently you will see cold light, and cold light is going to produce warm shadows. Like for example, if you will have a studio setting that's similar to mine where the light is actually coming from the north side so i don't have direct sun exposure so the light is kind of coming from the sky the color of the light in my studio is very frequently bluish which produces orange shadows that are on the other side of the color wheel so you can almost think about it in like sets of complementary so when you have bluish shadows uh bluish shadows then you can see okay that's an orange light if you have orange shadows okay that's a kind of bluish light and uh vice versa right and i think the thing I, I think we're both touching on the same thing too, and I, I agree exactly with everything you're saying. The thing that got me was that there was not like an answer for it. It was just like that's what we do, and it's like, well, no. Then there's like there's that. That's fine, and I call it the head and the heart. It's kind of like you can paint from your heart and be expressive, and then you can paint from the head, which is scientific, and the two have to be in balance with each other in a painting. And I can't tell you what that is. I can't tell you how much of each it's going to be either. But all these breakthroughs in like scientific uh, color in like the 19th century are fantastic. Like Viber writing the, the science of color. So in I'll get back to the book for a sec. So in the book, and I brought it up because I totally, you know, brain fart right now. But I start with idea vision. No, I start up with setting, setting up materials, setting up your studio for still life painting, all the things that you should think about. Setting up a light. Then it's what to paint. After that's composing, how to compose, which is what you said, starting to make your picture with the thing, right? So we're, we're in sync, actually. Now you have your teddy bear in your jar. Now you're going to put it together. Well, now you have to know about light and how light works. After that is drawing. So you have to draw it whatever way you want to do it. You either can draw it directly on the canvas or you can draw it on a piece of paper and transfer it over. Then you have to talk about color because you're going to add color to it. And then you have to think about modeling of forms. So then at the end of the book is an additional chapter I called applying the paint, uh, which is guidelines and techniques, which is just how paint works under paintings, how they can influence every layer, scumbling, glazing, uh, fat over lean, all these kind of concepts that are go into like the, the complex idea of what a painting is. And then it ends with a uh, step-by-step of me going through every little from beginning to end color studies all the way up through transfer drawing to final. And uh, yeah, so I think it, it goes back to what you were saying about like with light. So mm. in the light chapter, I talk about the Kelvin of light. People get even crazier about it with like CRI, which is totally fine if you want to go there. I don't, I think it's like once you get into Kelvin of light, you've already lost half the audience. <laughs> if you want to get into CRI and like. I don't even know what that is. What is CRI? I know what Kelvin is, but what is CRI? I think it's like color rating index. Hmm. And it just has to do with uh, perfection of color of like, uh, they'll give you a rating for a light bulb. And if it's a hundred, then it's uh, like a perfect light and nothing wow. ever is. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's totally nerdy, but it's like, then you take like, so I usually just explain it as like Kelvin's just the temperature, which is like you, what you said, mm-hmm. you've got orange for low Kelvin 2200 
3000 Kelvin. You got five to 5,500, which is uh, daylight. And then you get into the really cool side of it, 7,500 Kelvin. So just something like that. Cause everyone goes, what light should I buy to paint? Do a still light painting in my studio? And I say, well, you could buy any light you want to. If you have a North light, you could use that too. But if you have a South light, you're probably going to get a lot of direct light and it's going to stink. But if you're like me and I paint at nighttime, you're probably going to have to buy a light. And that's when I go into kind of just, here's some cheap ones at Home Depot that you could buy that could work. Here's how to build a still light box or a shadow box to kind of contain the light into a little structure. And then you end up being uh, almost like a theater director where you're kind of directing the light into it and all the objects in it as well. Um, and then, you know, I use like three to 3,300 Kelvin light bulbs. I like warmer paintings. Uh, Rembrandt did too. <laughs> That's true. Maybe you can say a few words uh, to bring our listeners into why painters have this obsession with North Light. Yeah, well, I think, again, I think it's historical. So a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about, and I always uh, will just bring up the discussion of, which is why I don't always just answer the question, is because it's the same exercise that I do when I say, like, walk into a walk into the room and then you make your decision. Like you try these things out and then decide if you want North light. Uh, it's not always practical. I mean, like North light is uh, if you're in the Northern hemisphere, North light is not direct facing. So it's ambient because it's reflecting off of the atmosphere. So it'll actually uh, be illuminated longer and not direct. And depending on the aperture, meaning the size of your window is whether or not it's going to be effective or not. Not everybody has a north-facing window. You could have a north, northeast or a, a northwest, which would affect it as well. Uh, skylights are also great if you can get them, but I don't have a lot of money, <laughs> so I can't do most of those things. So I just get, uh, as you can see, this bulb over here has the ability to go warm and cool. So oh, I, that's cool. Yeah, I buy bipolar uh, light bulbs. So it can go all the way from 2,300 Kelvin to 6,800 Kelvin. Mm. So I can emulate daylight if I want to, but I still prefer warm, warm light. And that's, again, I had always been taught you should always paint under daylight and a North facing window. And I go, crap, that sucks. Cause I don't like to paint during the day. I want to paint at night. I guess uh, I'm a failure. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so it's like, we're always shedding dogmas. That's all we're doing. And that's what I'm always trying to like, let people know that like you, when that door closes, you can do whatever you want in your studio, which is one of the things I say in setting up is just, find your uh find your as joseph campbell would say your bliss station this is for you we're doing this for us so why not be happy when you're doing it it's not like if i say like can you have to paint under north light and then you go home you know and you put that britney mm. spears record on and you're like i can't let anyone know that i like britney spears but i love her <laughs> it's I like think, you know i think that's really important what you're saying because uh in the in the defense of people who are thinking this way and, and answering questions. I think, I think their state of mind and where, where they're coming from is like painting is so intimidating. It looks mm -hmm. so impossible, so difficult. So they're just looking for a, for a set of rules that they can follow so that they can touch that magical thing. I'm sure. Cause I, I get these questions all the time and they're saying like, Oh, did I do this wrong? Or did I do this, this? And, I, and I'm, I'm very much on, on the same page with you. And I'm saying like, listen, it's not about doing this right or wrong. It's like every decision that you make has consequences, whether or not you're interested in those consequences 
is totally up to you. Like I'm a yeah. huge sucker for North Light. I'm just That's infatuated great. with it. But I, I totally, I totally also like work with artificial light. Like I have, I have daylight light bulbs, which are like a cheap imitation of of the daylight. But it's, I, I totally know that it's, it's a completely emotional thing, and it's probably because right. when I studied painting, I studied at a studio that has north light and that's mm-hmm. when i fell in love with painting so when i see something illuminated by the north light it reminds mm-hmm. me of that you know that warm and fuzzy feeling of learning to paint for the first time and it just you know it takes me to the right emotional place oh, yeah. where i want to be at but for somebody who wants to paint at night and be a you know a different kind of painter uh, uh, then i totally understand how that makes absolutely no sense and so on that note i think everybody should just recognize that you should really be attuned to what it is that makes you happy about right. painting. And it's very, very worthwhile. For example, if you're walking in a museum and you see different painting uh, styles and you say, wow, the way that that guy captured light, I really like that. And then you go and you research. And it's like, oh, it's Delatour. He used day, you know, uh, candlelight or, or, or whatever. And, and, uh, or it's Monet. He was painting outside. So I think this, is, this all has to do with being informed and, and art historically engaged mm-hmm. such that you can produce the correct visual effects that suit your personal style. Absolutely. I agree with it. Amen. Again. Amen. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, look, I don't want to give people reasons not to create art. They're creating it for many different reasons. Uh, just, just paint whatever it's going to get you to paint. Like if you want to be a daily painter, that's totally fine. Like go buy a daily painter book and start there. It may be the spark that gets you in into the, like going into the gym is always the hardest, right? It's like, nobody wants to start. And then once you're in there, you're like, this is great. Now I'm going to come five times a week. So it's like, whatever gets people happy for one, that's why we're doing it. Um, I hope no one's like ever holding a gun to someone's head and say like, you're paint tonight for four hours, but paint when you want to paint. The other thing I always would hear was like, you got to paint for eight hours a day. And if you don't, you're not a true artist. And I was like, man, I, I paint for like three hours because that's enough emotional brain power for me. And uh, my client does it too. I know I've heard interviews with him. I actually found it uh, a breath of fresh air when I heard another person like just say like, yeah, I paint for three hours. That's, that's how much I want to paint a day. I don't stop thinking about it, as my wife will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I think the act, the physical act of doing it, it takes so much out of us that it's like, for me, I'm fine with three hours. I'm fine with whatever, even just being in the studio sometimes, just doing a panel, thinking about the next painting. I, I'd rather, for me, that's when it's like, once I get into like painting, then I'm like, well, now it's like about having a game plan of like making good moves while I'm in the studio. And that means while I'm here. So I always look, everybody's going to have a different situation they're into, which is why I try to just be very open-minded of like, I don't know what, what you have. I have a house and we used to live in Queens and I used to have this tiny uh, uh, junior one bedroom and the living room was my studio. So my wife would be right next to me watching TV and I'd be painting. That didn't really work out all that much for blocking light, but we did the best that we could. And now I have my own, my own room. So I have, I have like four studios, uh, four setups here for still life paintings because I love still life. And I didn't even mean to get into still life for me. It was like, take everything that I learned and I was painting at night because I was working during the day. And it was like, well, how do I just paint? 
And I was like, well, just start painting things and it'll start to fall into place. Like what you love and what you don't want to paint. It could be that teddy bear with the jar. It could be whatever it is, whatever it's going to do to get you in there and then make a decision off that and say, is that good or bad? Now, how do I pivot and make a better painting? So I have like four setups always. So I have like one or two setups I'm always thinking about. And I think of them as like, those are like the, those are what I want to be remembered for. Those are my stunners. Those are my like, think these things through. This is my, my great work. And then the other ones are just kind of like either me just in the studio doing a sketch really quickly because I just want to paint <laughs> or like, let me do a small little painting as a poster study or a little tiny version of it. And then if I love it at this stage, it has to get past this stage and be approved by me. <laughs> and then if it does, then it's going to make it to the next stage, but I'll do that painting and then I'll put it on the wall and then look at it and then judge the crap out of it for like, you know, sometimes up to a couple of weeks. And then if it gets approved, I'll do a big one. But there are many that just kind of died right there on the canvas that never, never made it. As, as they always do. I don't know about you, but for me, when I, whenever I kind of, put that pressure on myself. This is a work for which I'm going to be remembered. I, I think you're better than, than I am at that because your, your ambitious works end up being like actually really good. But, but for me somehow, I, I don't want to jinx myself, but at the end of the day, when I, when I ask myself, what are my favorite paintings that I've ever done? These are paintings that I didn't even mean to be significant. I just kind of look mm. back at my body of work and I'm just like, man, all these, these paintings that I, I put so much of my time and energy in because I wanted them to be complete showstoppers. I end up kind of feeling alienated by them. And those like quick things that I don't consider myself like an alla prima painter, like by any means, but for some yeah. reason, if I had to like pick my favorite five painters that I, five paintings that I've ever done, I think most of them are just sketches that I did yeah. while I was in the absolute correct emotional place when I was painting. And I think, I think it's something that I personally have to work on because I think the right emotional space for me is what produces the high quality in my work. And maybe it's just a little bit more difficult to sustain that emotional state when it's a painting that I'm working on for a month. I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah. You know, the, yeah, I do. I, I think uh, we're our own worst critics. I think sometimes I'm in the middle of a painting. I'm going to go, I'm like, Oh my God, whatever magical power maybe I had, I just lost it. And nobody can see this. And then for some reason, it turns from a, a ugly duckling into a beautiful swan. And then I go, I'm not as crappy as I thought I was, I guess. <laughs> so it's like, it's always this kind of like, oh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. You could probably like see the glowing lights from, you know, my wife's like, oh, God, the transformation's happening. He's a beast. <laughs> so I think, I think, uh, I definitely think that we are our, worst, our own worst enemies. One of the things that I did which I love that I did Jacob and I did Max. I also did Travis Schlott too. Mm. Uh, Travis is somewhere in the middle of the two that I found like, well, this is a good bridge. And um, what I found was that all these ideas I need to work out on paper to see which one I wanted to do because I go to the museum and I'd be like, okay, I love Henry Fontaine Latour. Cool. I also love the Impressionists, but I also love like, you know, Bouguereau and, And the uh, French academics, I love Jerome. I love that beautiful bark they have at the Met that makes me drool. Uh, just like, holy crap, how could someone do this beautiful little painting? But it's like, well, that's a large gamut of like, if I showed my work and that was my body of it, you'd be like, this guy's all over the place. So what I tried to do was kind of visually work it out. And that's what those little studies to me ended up doing is like, here's the kind of indirect, here's where I can use my direct method, right? Just like quickly get these beautiful... Uh, 
optical way of working, just record everything that I see in front of me, light, dark, triangulate off of it. And then the other one would be like longer paintings that I'm doing uh, indirect. And I've always thought I need to bridge the two of them in my larger work because I love all those smaller little studies way better than the bigger ones. I do like the big ones and I'm really happy and they've sold. But the thing is like, I love the spirit in those little, little quick ones. I think it sounds like what you're, I love, I think you did the one of, um, uh, what's his name? He was my monitor in my class at the Art Students League. You painted him. Was it Freddie? Who? Freddie? No, not Freddie. Not Freddie. Uh, John, the guy with no, the jacket. No, no. Um, I painted all of them. No, Asian dude. A student. Oh, uh, Austin. Austin, yes. Austin. 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 I love the painting. Shout out to Austin. I know. Austin, I hope you're doing all right. He's in Spain, right? Yep, he's in Spain. Um, yeah, so like, like I think... I look at my work all the time and I'm always judging it going like, like the realism thing works and my gallery loves it, but I don't even think I, my heart's in it anymore. I keep going towards like, it's like I'm starting, I started at Aang and now I'm like, ah, ah Delacroix is sounding so much better to me <laughs> these days. There's something, there's something that you just can't teach. I think in the Delacroix, you have to get there. It's kind of like you have to learn the classical music and the, the, the structure idea. And then you have to be like, now break out and loosen. And then I think that's where the kind of visual poetry comes out of it, where you kind of, you're not like, ah, this is a perfect form. It's like, nah, it's, it's about the picture and the expression. That's why I love, love like Robert, Robert Henry, the art oh spirit, my God. things like that. I love that you brought him up because when you said <laughs> Franz Hals is like a Baroque sergeant, in my back of my mind, I was like, Franz Hals is Robert Henry. That's yeah. The- like these two are the only two that got away with painting smiley faces. Like nobody else. I know. <laughs> nobody else. I'm could doing do. a portrait right now of a guy smiling. It's terrible. Oh, how's it going? It's like, I don't oh, know. It's just it can't terrible. be done. It just can't be done. No. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that because honestly, in my experience, it can't be done. No, it's taken a long time too. And I think the person that wants it done is like, what are you doing over there? And I'm like, eh, I'm just going to burn it. But no. I haven't yet. <laughs> Yeah, not easy oh, to do. That's brilliant. I think I think this is a brilliant note to to end on because everybody can kind of see that even uh, even somebody like Todd burns a painting occasionally when <laughs> when the oh, yeah. smile doesn't work. Honestly, that's why I say like don't paint on aluminum dye bond, even though everyone wants to do it these days. How, what what's going to happen if it sucks? How exactly. do you burn it? How do you exactly. burn it? Do it on birch. They burn really nice. <laughs> You know, this is just before we close. This is like something that that happened to me when I was when I was studying. I was working on this drawing for must have been like two weeks, and I remember I was I was showing it. I I, I was showing it to my teacher, hoping to kind of get good feedback, right? And he said it's like it's terrible. And and then you know I I kind of thought, okay, well if it's terrible, like how do I fix it? Like, can I fix it? He's like, no, you, you can't fix it. And then I said, well, well, what do I do with it? And what he said, what he said was in Hebrew, he said, Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is a holiday where we do bonfires. So he, he basically just said like, just keep it until the holiday and just burn it all down. So That's awesome. I think this is, this is serious stuff for, for the students among you who are listening. Listen, it's okay to make bad paintings. We all make bad paintings. They're just a part of the process. You don't have to post them on your Instagram. Just make those bad paintings. They're just going to be lessons from which you learn, things that you learn to do less of in your process of, of growing. And don't be down on yourself when something doesn't come out good. It happens to all of us. 
Don't think that because all I post on my Instagram is the nice stuff that I don't make really, really mm-hmm. ugly stuff. I, trust me. I really, really do. And it's all like Baumel for me. Uh, I have a lot of those uh, here and I keep them around to remind myself to, um, you know, uh, there's a Charles Hawthorne quote. I think it's, um, is that if you're not going to get a thrill out of the thing that you're doing, how would you expect somebody else to? So it's like, you should be painting paintings that you love. I don't want to part with mine when I love them. So I keep yeah. the ones around that meant that remind me that you should have meaning in everything that you're doing that I didn't have. I was just like, ah, oh, there's a painting and it kind of stinks. It's like, it's on the wall right now and it's going to make me sharp every time I come to the, the easel. <laughs> Love it. All right, Todd, do you want to let people know where they can find you? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram at Todd M Casey. Um, Facebook. Somebody asked me why I wasn't on Twitter. And I was like, I don't think you want to hear whatever the crap I would say. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, website, ToddMKC.com. Um, podcasts. I'm on Ken's oh, podcast. On the Art School podcast. Where can people get your book? It sounds like a book that's a must read for anybody starting out. Uh, it's actually, a, it's in its second printing now. So mm. it should be back, I think, on Amazon next month. But right now, it's you can't get it. I get a lot of emails. If anyone does want to email me, I don't know when you're going to go up with this live, but I have a couple here. So mm-hmm. I'm hope I'm hoping the publisher gets it back uh, soon. But Brilliant. it was so- like $25 on the Amazon. It was like so cheap for 320 pages. It didn't even make sense. <sighs> so as soon as it becomes available, you'll send me a link and I'll put it in the show notes so that it's there for, for posterity. And uh, in any event, people should keep up with what Todd is doing on his Instagram. And so when it gets, when the book gets out again, make sure that you snag a copy. Todd, thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. Appreciate it. Been awesome talking to you. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again and see you next time.